Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good? Man, we are excited that you're here with us at the Journey Church. Um, we're in just a little bit, we're going to dive headlong into the book of Judges. Um, I think I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, I, I can't remember, cannot remember sitting in church and actually going through a whole study on the book of Judges. So I thought, well, we should do that. And so that's what we've been doing over the last several weeks. So uh, a couple of changes have uh, been taking place at the Journey and more of this kind of just on a logistic side of things, and so I want to share a couple of those with you. Uh, one of those um, is about our giving here at The Journey. We have changed giving platforms. Again, we've done this several times, but I think we've got one that first is financially advantageous for us as a church and, and doesn't cost quite as much for us. And so with that, uh, there's also a new app that you can download uh, for that. So I wanted to share that with you. It's just Church Center. If you type in Church Center into either Apple or Android, it will find it for you. And, and so you just look for our Journey logo there. And you can click on that. And there's two things it'll do for us. One, it helps us with our giving uh, because most people give online. Uh, but it also will help uh, with our children's check-in when we start Journey Kids back, so you'll be able to check your kids in before you ever get to church. So, But it, we already had all this with our planning center. If you don't know anything about that, that's the platform we use to organize our ministries. And so it's, it's going to be really cost-effective for us. So I would encourage you, if you're at home today or wherever you're at, uh, if, if you normally have a reoccurring gift, you will have to go back in and reset that up. So I want to let you know that too, uh, because you may assume that your gift is going through and notice it's not. Also, our webpage, uh, this is where when Pastor Mark tries to do too many things like renewing our domain name for our webpage, it slips through the cracks. I went to go on our website this morning and it was like, error, there's nothing there. So I did go pay our domain fee. So it may be a day before our website's back up, so if you're trying to find that, I apologize uh, for that as well. Thing two, so our community groups are meeting uh, right now. Currently, we have three of those. And so the Sandiford group is going to begin meeting this week. These are the Sandifords right here. And uh, so they're going to be meeting at Johanna Long's house. She's right up there, okay? And so she lives a little bit closer in and so we'll post that on our Facebook page today and we'll put some stuff on the website about it so you can go find that there so if you're looking for a community group to plug into I would encourage you to go check out the Sandifer group they're great people they're a lot of fun too so uh, you'll have a great time with that all right so how do we know what God has planned for us how do we know that God has amazing things planned for our life See, probably one of the things more people struggle with than anything else is how can God use me? How can he use me? How can he use my abilities? How can he use my skills? Because I feel so weak. I feel so useless. I, I don't feel like I have anything, obviously, um, a lot of times to offer God. Um, so we're going to talk about a figure or character in Scripture today, Gideon. Uh, so two people in Judges actually make up the majority of the book of Judges, and that's Gideon and Samson. In fact, uh, three chapters, total of 100 verses are devoted to Gideon, and there's four chapters with 96 verses devoted to Samson. So we're going to be talking about Gideon and Samson for quite a while. So the time God had given them into the, at this time into the hands of the Midianites. So you remember we talked about every week we're saying, hey, they go through this cycle, things are going well, 
God sends a judge. He sends someone to fight for them. And then they have a time of supposed peace. However, we know until Christ comes back, there is no peace. Peace doesn't actually happen. And then it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so beginning of chapter 6, which is where we're going to be this morning, it all starts again. The cycle starts again. The Midianites were a little bit different foe, though. I mean, these guys, these were people were bad news. In fact, the Israelites, it says at the time, they were hiding out in the caves, right? And so um, much like when I was in Rome, we visited the catacombs, and we went down where the Christians had to hide away uh, from, uh, from the oppression from the Romans. And so they're hiding in these caves, and Gideon is threshing wheat in the wine press because what had happened is, is they would let them out just long enough to cultivate their crops, get their, their herd going, and everything going good, and the Midianites would come in, swoop in, take all of their crops, they would take all of their livestock, and they would leave them destitute and demolished. And so they would do this over and over and over and over again. See, the scope of the reign of terror that expanded, actually expanded past the Midianites to the Malachites. So they actually brought in a whole nother group of Eastern people. Have you noticed how for, for this particular group of people, for the Israelites, things had to get into a really desperate state before they cried out to God? Okay, so it took a little while for all this to take place. But what do we do when we get in a bad situation? We want God to bail us out, right? We expect God to bail us out. When we get in a bad situation, we expect God to do something about it. We're like, God, come on. It's time. You do something. You fix my problem. And then we realize how weak we are and how inadequate we are to do anything about it. If you have your Bibles, open to Judges chapter 6. And we're going to be reading uh, beginning in verse 7 this morning. We're going to take this a little piece at a time because there are actually three different stories within this narrative. It begins in verse 7. It says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt, I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all those who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. I want you to notice a couple of things in that short passage. How many times the messenger or God said, I. He said, I did this, and I delivered you, and I said to you, and I am the Lord your God. I am all of these things to you. So what's different about this time? Well, before... God would send a judge, and a judge would come in, and a judge would rule, and a judge would do all these things. But you know what God did this time? He sent a preacher. He sent a sermon to them. He's like, I'm not just going to come in and take care of your problem. I want you to know who I am. And so he sends in uh, this prophet. So I don't know if you're one of those who reads calorie tabs on the back of anything or pays any attention when you go into a restaurant, how many calories something has. Personally, I wish they wouldn't put that on there because I don't want to know, okay? I would just rather eat it and feel good about it. But in November of 2014, the Food and Drug Administration 
released a rule that calories had to be put on everything in restaurants. Not only restaurants, but all produce, anything as consumable. So presumably, if a person sees a hamburger that's 800 calories and a chicken sandwich that's maybe 500 calories, they assume you're going to pick what? The 500 calories, right? The chicken sandwich. It doesn't phase me. I'm like, I want the hamburger. <laughs> that's what I'm eating, right? Well, you know, most Americans actually think that way. In fact, they said nearly 75 to 80% that supported the labeling pay no attention to it. In fact, they said 93% of the public completely ignore it. They eat what they want to eat anyway, even though they know the adverse effects, even though they see that in black and white. See, unfortunately, there's one big problem with food labeling. It doesn't seem to change our minds, right? So why do the Israels not have a change of mind? Just like putting calories on products we eat doesn't necessarily change our eating habits. Many times with true change, for true change to happen, we have to acknowledge our sin and understand that we have a sin problem. We are in desperate need of being fixed. And see, we don't understand that. And so I believe this morning you're going to find out how the Israelites needed a change. But the change they thought they wanted never came in a way that, uh, that, that brought real change in their life. I think the first thing we understand is that real change takes place when we experience godly sorrow. Okay, so there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly regret. Okay, so um, our Lord finds our desires, this is a quote by C.S. Lewis, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, okay? He says we're like, like arrogant children who just want to keep on making mud pies in a slum. When we're offered eternal glory, we're offered the great things that God has for us, but instead of taking those, right, we would rather do something else. And so what was happening with the Israelites, it says, and we've been talking about, is they would take the gods of these other people. They begin to intermix with them. See, the first reply to God wasn't to save them. It was to get their attention. I want to ask you this morning, what does God use to get your attention? What is, what is God, when does he get my attention? This is, see, so instead of sending a Savior and sending a, 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 a preacher, it would be much like a motorist calling a garage when they have a flat tire or something wrong on the side of the road. And instead of sending you the mechanic, they send you, say, a philosopher, right? Or they send you somebody totally different. So why did the Lord send a sermon first? Well, I think one of the things that we understand is the Israelites really didn't appreciate what they had. Look what, look what God says. He said, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, right? He said, I said to you, I did all these things to you. Those who oppressed you before, I was the one. Remember, I did that. You know, be kind of like a parent with a, a rebellious child who you've given all the opportunities, you've given everything for. Say, hey, before you forget, I put a roof over your head. I fed you, right? I brought you into this world. I did all of these things. You are so spoiled. You're arrogant. Why? Why would you do anything different? See, God sends the prophet to convict people 
of sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. So there's a big difference between just grieving over something. Think about the last time you grieved over your sin. When is the last time you really grieved over the sin in your life? What did that look like for you? When's the last time you had had really a godly grief in your heart? See, the difference between worldly regret, and and I'm going to use real repentance because I think those fit together. Worldly regret is a sorrow over the consequences of sin. So this is the difference. Worldly regret is like, God, I'm sorry I sinned against you. God, I'm sorry I did this. You recognize, hey, I know I did wrong. I know I did this. So we just wallow in this cycle of grief. But you know the difference? There is no sorrow over how it grieves God. There's no sorrow that it violates and it rapes the very relationship I have with God. See, that's the difference between, between true regret, or true, true repentance, and just regret. In fact, um, Anthony Bourdain, uh, he's, uh, he's no longer living. He took his own life. He he traveled the world. I, I used to kind of watch him a little bit. He's a celebrity chef and a writer on TV. Anthony Bourdain had a tattoo on his arm in Greek, and it read, I'm certain of nothing. Imagine having a tattoo that says, I'm really certain of nothing. I, 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 I don't. And so he was this professing hedonist, and he says, I'm certain of nothing. And he committed suicide on June 8th of 2018 at age 61 in the interview with Men's Journal, Bourdain was asked, what are the benefits of hedonism? Okay, so if you don't know what hedonism is, that's just indulging yourself in the world. That's self-indulgent, right? Everything's here to please me. It's all about me. And he said, and, and, and so what are the risks? And so Bourdain replied, look, I understand that inside of me there is a greedy, gluttonous, lazy hippie, you know, I understand that there's a guy inside of me who wants to lay in bed, smoke weed all day, and watch cartoons. Does that sound like a good day? I don't know. Smoking weed, probably not. But, you know, he says, I just want to lay around. I want to be lazy, and I want to do what I want to do. And so when asked, how should a man handle regret in their life? And what's the biggest regret you have? Bourdain replied, regret is something you've got to just live with. You can't drink it away. You can't run away from it. You can't trick yourself out of it. You've just got to own it. I've disappointed and hurt many people in my life, he said. But then he said, you eat that guilt and you live with it every day of your life. See, that's worldly regret. You just eat that guilt and you live in guilt and shame. Hey, listen to me, church. That's not repentance. Repentance is not living with guilt and shame over your life. It's freedom from guilt and shame. In fact, we understand that regret is all about us, right? It's how it hurt me, what it did to me. Have you ever heard somebody going through regret? How, look what this did to me. Look how this, this affected me. See, that's not a Christian attitude towards repentance. Repentance is all about who? God. How did it affect God? What does it do to God? What does it do to the holiness of God? And that's where at the very beginning of this, that's why he sends a preacher, is because he says, I want you to know this is what it does to to the glory of God, the thing I sent you here to do. So we must first listen to God. 
We have to listen to God's word. Nobody comes to faith in Christ by himself. I don't come to faith in Christ just because I live a good life and I'm really sorry for the bad things I did, right? Because if that were the case, everybody would be in the kingdom of God because everybody has regrets. Anybody here today not have a regret in your life somewhere? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not that. Everybody has regrets, but not everybody has godly sorrow. Not everybody experiences repentance. See, we need to discern the difference between normal lapses and getting stuck. And this is what happens. The road to Christian maturity is going through the ups and downs. And so if, if I'm talking to somebody and they're struggling with shame and, and, and depression over, over failures and all these things in their life, and they're a believer in Christ, okay, the first thing I want to ask them, so the sin... Is it a normal lapse or is it something you get stuck in? What's the difference? So a normal lapse is I realize I've sinned against God. Something I did this week. Let's, I mean, let's take one like I had a bad thought or I, I got angry, right? And so what do we do? We take that thought captive, as Paul says. We recognize that as sin, and then we go to the Father, and we are, are repentant. We're broken about that. We desire to be healed. What is getting stuck? Well, getting stuck is that regretful feeling of sin that keeps coming back over and over again. See, I think more of our problem is, is we live in regret. We don't live in repentance. See, there's a big difference. See, the real change takes place when we see grace before repentance. So look in verse 11. The story gets a little deeper. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth at Oprah, which belongs to Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press. Anybody ever beat out wheat before? So, so you beat the wheat and, and the chaff falls away and, and the good grain, and so you're separating the two out on this floor. So he's sitting there beating this out, and it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I serve Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So let me give you a picture. This is what's going on. So this angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And he says, Behold, man of valor. Anybody ever called you a man or woman of valor this week? Anybody just come up? Hey, you're, you're a person of valor, right? No, I've, I've never had that happen. See, the re reality is, is God doesn't wait for us to repent. And notice, he didn't wait for the nation of Israel to turn back to him, right? God already had a plan in place before he begins to save us. In fact, in Romans 5 it says, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1, 4-5, even as he chose us by the, from the foundations of the earth to save us. So God, God doesn't begin to save us just merely because we repent. 
He doesn't save you just because you repent. He doesn't begin, I mean, all of a sudden we repent. He's like, oh, I think I'm going to save you now because you repented. It's not how it works. So God is already in the process of saving Israel. See, God is both more holy and more merciful than you are. He's more holy and more merciful than I am. See, we tend to sacrifice one for the other. We either have this idea of, I am so miserable, like, like uh, Gideon. Gideon says, oop, you got the wrong person. Man of valor, I don't know who you're talking to. He says, I am the weakest. See, Manasseh was the weakest tribe in all of Israel. They had the fewest in number. They were the weak ones. And so what did God do? He went and he took the weakest link. He said, you're the weakest link, and guess what? You are a mighty man of valor. And I'm going to use you to set these people free. I'm going to use you to do a great thing. So we either think that we are not up to the task or the other thing we do, okay, so we either tend to sacrifice one for the other. So God would never accept me because of all the things I have done, right? So we loathe in that or, or we say God is loving, God is kind, he has to accept me. He has to take me because, I, I, because he loves everybody. God loves everybody. He just has to accept me. He has to take me. So we, we go back and forth between these two things. See, the fundamental failure of Israel and our failure today is to realize that we are in a relationship, right? So if you're, um, if you're married out there today or, or have ever dated or been in a relationship, right, what does it mean to be in a relationship with your husband or your wife, right? Well, first, it's a commitment right? So there's a, there, there's a, there is a difference if you're not married, because what? If you're not married, first, you haven't put a ring on the finger, okay? So there's not that covenant or commitment. And if it doesn't work out, what happens? You can just walk away, right? <laughs> if it doesn't work out. That's why they say today, statistically, more people are choosing not to get married. In fact, you're likely to find a couple that chooses just to live with each other than get married. Why? Because there's no commitment. There's no covenant. They can walk away if it doesn't work out. Well, that's not where the nation of Israel was with God. They had a covenant with him. They were through Abraham. They're in a covenant relationship. You can't just walk away from that. You can't just leave that behind. See, when grace is introduced to, to repentance, the two of us become best friends and we enter this relationship, right? And so you have to have grace before you have repentance. Grace comes before our repentance. But real change takes place when we are weak and he is strong, right? To realize that we are weak and he is strong. Uh, my grandpa Russell, one of the, in my mind, one of the strongest men who ever lived. I don't know if this is true. I've heard stories that he could take a horseshoe. He was a farmer rancher in West Texas have pictures of him in front of with his dad in front of the mud dugouts in West Texas and I heard he could take a horseshoe and literally bend it out I don't know if that's true um, but he was a strong man worked the land all of his life but you know towards the end of his life he was working with with a group uh, from Leveland College he taught building trades and uh and they were building a house. It was their house project. And some of, of the gentlemen above him had loads of sheetrock they were taking up to the top of this house. 
and accidentally dropped it. My grandfather was under it when it hit, and it, it landed on his back. Well, he didn't realize at the time that he had a tumor growing in his back, and something happened when that sheetrock hit, and it set that tumor off in his back, and he began to deteriorate. They had to, had to put steel rods in his back, and he spent his final days in the hospital, and the man that I thought was so strong and so powerful just, I mean, withered away to, to a shell of his former self. Well, why do I tell you that? Because my grandfather also was a mighty man of God. He loved the Lord. He served God. He taught me to love God. He taught me what it looked like to be a man of God. And I'll tell you something. That My grandfather in the hospital bed was just as strong a man as he was when he had all of his faculties together. See, that's understanding. When we are weak, he is strong. I don't know if you remember the beginning of the movie Spider-Man. Uh, Peter Parker undergoes this transformation uh, into, into Spider-Man, and he's all of a sudden the hero. And so uh, MJ is the woman that he sets his affections on. And so there's one scene, actually, where she's being mugged, and Spider-Man sweeps in and saves the day. And then later, Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, but she doesn't know it, have this conversation, and, and she begins to tell him about her Savior, right? And everybody's like, oh, just tell her. Come on, quit being a loser. Tell her, right? And so Peter searches for the right words to say, and he says this. He says, it's like when you look in her eyes and she looks back in yours. Everything feels not quite normal because you feel strong and weak at the same time. You feel excited and at the same time, you're terrified. See, the truth is, you don't know the way you feel, except you know the kind of man you want to be. It's as if you've reached the unreachable, and you weren't ready for it when it came. I believe that's the way our relationship is with God. We stand in the presence of God. I, I feel many times much the way Isaiah did when he, when he stood in the presence of God, he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, right? I live among an unclean people. And God said, uh-uh, wait a minute. Who'll go for me? Because I want to use you. I have a greater plan for your life. See, the angel greets Gideon with these three words. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Do you notice that? Do you ever feel that way? Do you wake up in the morning and, and look yourself in the mirror and say, Hey, the Lord is with you, right? I mean, the problem many times in our life is we try to do it all by ourselves. And what does Gideon say? He says, well, if God is with me, why? How, how often do we do that, right? If God is with me, why? Why do all of these things happen? And God says, you are the salvation I am sending. You are my mighty warrior. You are the Moses for this generation, so there's two different things that happen. We see the troubles that we've had, and we're like, if you are God, why did you let all this happen? Why didn't you just fix it? Aren't you glad that God doesn't judge a book by its cover? You ever heard that expression? Man, I am so glad that God doesn't judge this book by its cover. Because I know most days when I look at this cover, I don't see power. I don't see strength. I see weakness. But that's not what God sees. See, to judge by appearance, Gideon is anything but a mighty man of valor. Gideon needs to be encouraged. And this is, listen to me, church. Every day, God is looking at you, and he sees something completely different than we see in ourselves. See, Gideon represented Israel. 
Gideon is perfected in his weakness. God is perfecting you in your weakness. And number four, real change takes place when we recognize the enemy in our camp. And so he goes on, and so Gideon goes through several tests, and I'm going to give these to you. So Gideon went up to the house, and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes uh, from, from an ephah flour, and the meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them to this angel. And the angel of the Lord of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff. It was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from the side. Then Gideon, I love this, Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. What was his first clue? I perceive you're an angel of the Lord, right? And so it says he perceives all of a sudden that he's an angel of the Lord. And then he says, it says to Gideon, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord, and you've done all of these things, right? And peace be to you, do not fear. And then he goes and he begins the process of what he was told to do. So this is what he was told to do by God. He said, I want you to go to those altars that they're, that they're worshiping idols and that Baal is being worshipped on. I want you to tear them down. I want you to take a bull, and I want you to worship God. Gideon's like, oh, that's a pretty bold thing, right? So what does he do? He does what the Lord says, but notice it says he goes at night. He doesn't go during the day. Weenie. He goes at night, right? Doesn't want his family or anybody to see him. But God says, okay, I'm going to kind of take a stand. Let's knock these over. Let's worship. And then they wake up the next morning. And check this out. This is his family. These are his friends. These are people he grew up with. These are the people next door down the street that know him. And they woke up, and they were irate. They said, what have you done? Who did this? Who tore down these altars? And somebody ratted him out and said, uh, it's Gideon over here. He's the one that did it. One of those ten servants he took with said, yeah, it's Gideon. He did it, right? He did it. See, I think we forget who the enemy is. There's three things I want us to recognize this morning, that there is an enemy among us. What is the enemy among us? Well, the Lord has given them into the hand of Midian, the foe, right? So we put all of our things in this world, right? And so the enemy among us is in our camp. We've let the enemy inside of our lives. We've let the enemy inside of our camp. You notice it says the life of Oprah, that was his father, revolved around these worships of Baal. Of Baal. So we have brought the enemy into our camp. We, God's people, do know the Lord, but how much the world has influenced our lives. When we let the, the world inside of this camp, right, we move away from obedience. But this is the thing. This is the first call towards obedience. We are called to stand up against the enemy. Did you know that? This morning, church, you are called to take a stand against the enemy, to stand up against him. So Gideon, he took a first step. I don't want to be too hard on the guy because he did take a risk, okay? 
and it got out that all of this had happened. So what happened? If you look at the bottom, uh, beginning in verse 33, it says, Now all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east, they came together and across the Jordan, and they camped at the valley Jezreel. He said, But the Spirit, I want you to hear this, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And what did Gideon do? He realized that the enemy is now all around us. And he called out for God's people to stand up. He said, take a stand. Now is time. So somewhere along the way, if you notice the progression, he's getting a little bolder. His strength is growing. And he says, stand up. See, so once the enemy among us has been dealt with, then the enemy around us must be looked to. First, the enemy is not only allowed, but brought into this relationship. And second, we are called to stand up. He says, he says, now come and follow me. And so he called out to them. And in verse 35, it says, and he sent messengers throughout to Manasseh. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And they all went up to meet him, right? You know, I believe this. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I believe this. I believe when God's people stand up for what is right, when God's people truly take a stand, I believe God's people rally around each other. I really do. I think today we're too afraid to take a stand against anything. We'd rather just live our lives, right, in the backgrounds. Let, let me tell you something. When you were called to Jesus Christ, you weren't called to step in the back, right? You weren't called to fall into the backdrop of our society. God called us to take a stand. It costs us, yes, but the enemy in our camp needs to be dealt with. I think the second thing is we're called to stand up for what is right. When do we stand up for what is right? How are you taking a stand for what is right today? There are many things in our life that just aren't right, many things in our world that aren't right, okay? Now, I would tell you this. I do think we need to choose those things that we're going to take a stand for, okay, and not be wishy-washy about it because sometimes we go back and forth. Well, what does the world see? Well, do they really believe that's a sin? Do they really believe that's wrong? Do they really, I, I mean, where do you stand on that? So if we're going to go back and forth, sometimes that does worse uh, to the kingdom of God. But we have to take a stand. And then we have to understand that there's an enemy within us See, even now, the weakness of our own character remains inside of us. And so we have to battle constantly against that weakness. So I want to show you the last thing, the sign of the fleece. You know, every time I read the story of Gideon, I get to the sign of the fleece, I'm like, really, Gideon? Come on. What else has God got to do to prove himself to you? Okay, so some people take this another way, and they say this means we, can, we should test God. We should, we should always constantly be testing whether God really is, is calling us to do this or not. And I think we have to be careful about this being a blanket statement to Christians to test God. But let me share with you what this is. So beginning in verse 36, it says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying out this fleece of wool on the threshing floor, if there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground around it, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. 
When he rose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Okay, so he didn't stop, right? It's like, okay, God, you gave me your sign. Let's, no, he didn't stop. So then he said, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. I'm not really completely convinced. Let's, let's do this again, okay? So let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the ground only, and on all the ground let there be dew. This was even a greater test, right? I mean, just think about that, okay? So, so the, the complete opposite. And God did so that night, and it was dry, and the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So why is Gideon doing this? Well, Gideon is seeking God's assurance, right? When do we need assurance in our life? Have you ever been doing something and you're like, I'm just really not sure. God, I, I need your encouragement. See, similar actions happen to Christians today. Not that, that many times God in his mercy sometimes responds to us and calls us for assurance. He calls us to, to gain assurance. How are we going to be assured that this is really you? So does this mean we should test God? Well, we have to be careful because remember, Satan tried to test him. And Jesus said, you shall not what? Test the Lord your God, right? So don't test me. There are several things I think we noticed. Gideon was very specific. Gideon was seeking to understand the nature of God. But Gideon's request was for a purpose. And God was building his strength. He was encouraging him. Have you ever had God answer little by little things in your life? And you just start to see those little pictures of what God is doing, right? And you get encouraged. You get strengthened. You get, you get built up by that. Because what we're going to see next week, where Gideon's going to go from here is incredible. See, when we find ourselves like Gideon doubting God's promises or God's presence in our life, are we saying, I don't believe? Or are we saying, I will not believe? See, there's a difference between saying, I, I don't believe, but God, help me in my unbelief than saying, God, I just will not believe. I just choose not to believe that you want me to do that. I just choose not to. Did you know there's a place for telling God that we don't believe? Do you know that? I think my God's big enough to handle that. So do we say instead, I don't believe, but help me with my unbelief. Grow my strength. Increase my faith. You want to pray a prayer this week? Say, God, I, I don't know what you're doing, and, and I don't really know if I have the strength to do this, but increase my faith. Show me in my unbelief. Most of us long for a place somewhere between make-believe and reality, okay? Some of us just live in a make-believe world, okay? Um, our children, I don't know if your children are like mine, our children love make-believe land. Man, we thought they would never leave that land. Everything was make-believe, right? We had a magical kingdom in our house every day. And, and so um, I had the opportunity to go to Disney World years ago. Um, haven't been to Disneyland. Heard it's cool, too. But they created this whole place of fantasy, right? Doesn't matter your age, how old you are, where you come from. Supposedly, you step into this world of make-believe, and you can be whatever you want to be. See, somewhere in each of us, there's a desire for such a place in our imagination. In God's kingdom, you and I are created to reflect the very image of the invisible God. 
who created us and created the world. God did not choose someone else to express that creativeness through. Okay? He didn't, he didn't choose somebody else. He chose you. See, we are the means and the method and the object and the delivery system of God to the world. You're the means, you're the method, and you are that delivery system to the world. See, God can use anyone. For sure, it doesn't matter if you have the greatest beauty in the world, you're the most talented, or you can shred on the guitar, or you can play drums, or, or, or you have the best personality in the world. Man, I love that about God. It doesn't matter if you have all of these things in place. God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things for His kingdom. He chooses us today. He chooses the weak to show His strength. See, Gideon was one such individual in the Bible today. Okay, God uses to point us towards that grace. I want to ask you a couple of questions in closing this morning. Are you daily experiencing godly sorrow in your life over your sin? And I would ask you, if not, why not? Maybe it's because you're living in a world of regret and you, hadn't, you have yet to truly repent and turn to Him. You need to do that today. Is the grace of God daily becoming real for you? Is it daily becoming real for you, leading you to that repentance? And are you, are you currently experiencing God's power in your weakness? Saying, God, man, I'm weak, but I know you're strong. Are you daily identifying the enemy among you in your camp that is trying to control you, that's inside of your camp? And are you doing business? Are you taking a stand? Are you like, man, I'm here. I'm going to stand up against Satan. We used to teach a, a children's song um, when I did backyard Bible clubs with youth, and, and they always loved this song. I won't give you the words of it. I mean, it's a simple song, but I, I believe it to be true. When something like this, I'm not going to sing it for you, by the way. I will spare you. And it has motions to go with it. I thought about doing the motions. Those would be cool, too. But it goes like this. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God he cannot do for you. The mountains are his. The rivers are his. The skies are his handiwork too. My God is so big. He's so amazingly strong and mighty. There's nothing he won't do for you today if you'll just trust him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you today that you are a big God and gracious God and a patient God with your children this morning. Father, we know there is nothing that you will not do for your children. God, I pray that we'll grow strength from knowing that we are weak and that we'll be encouraged in knowing that you are strong and you are perfecting us in our weakness. God, just like Gideon, he didn't feel much like a mighty man of valor, but by the end of the story, he was ready to go do battle against the Malachites with the army of God behind him and you going before him. Father, give us that kind of strength to take a stand for what is right. Father, even when we don't believe and even when we falter in our belief, Father, give us greater faith. Give us greater strength, greater courage to take a stand for what is right and to follow you into the face of the battle today, Father. We love you and we praise you. We pray all these things in your amazing name. Amen.